John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. Everybody and welcome back. Before we get into the episode, just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast, and all that means is that we are way behind where I'm at in Patreon. So if you are loving this podcast and you need more John Constantine in your life, definitely go check us out at patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books and sign up for the Hellblazer tier, where you'll get access to the entire Hellblazer library that I've recorded so far. And also you get access to the exclusive episodes of the Planes, Trains, and Comic Books main podcast. So if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Today we're reading Hellblazer number 47. And just a little recap on what's been going on in the last couple issues. John has just beat terminal lung cancer. He was able to trick the three kings of hell into saving his life and also kind of end up guarding him throughout the rest of his life. And in the last issue, we saw him after he had been celebrating that, you know, he beat cancer and he tricked hell. But then he had a realization that maybe this wasn't such a good thing after all, because hell's not really known for sticking to its deals too well. Uh, they'll stick to the contract, but they always find a loophole. So while he was out thinking about this, he ran into his old friend Kit, who was a woman that was a partner to his friend Brendan, and they kind of have a history, not really romantic, but just they know each other. And while they were out catching up, we also saw that in his haste to celebration, John had forgotten to tell everybody that he already told that he was dying, that he's not dying anymore. And this realization comes when his friend Chaz sees him and is like, what are you doing here? I thought you were dying. And of course, John looks in tip top shape now. So Chaz thought maybe he was lying, but they eventually make up and then as they do that, John realizes, wait, he has to go tell his sister that he's not dead. And he also has to tell his friend, Matt, who's an old man who's also dying of cancer that he met in a terminal cancer ward. So he rushes to the hospital to see if Matt's okay and still alive. And also to tell Matt that he's not dead. And they had a little heart to heart. And that happens just before Matt starts coughing and he ends up dying horrifically in front of John's eyes. And in the last panel of that issue, John is outside the hospital in the pouring rain and he's in complete mourning for Matt and probably all the other friends that have died in his whole life. And Kit is with him out there trying to comfort him and calm him down. And that is where we left off with the last issue. So first things first with issue 47, we got the cover here. And in the background, we see there is a pub and there's a bunch of people at the bar ordering drinks. And sitting in the center, kind of in the foreground, we see there is a ghostly figure that is made up all of white, kind of looks like a cloud. It's just the vague shape of a human. And then we see a little bit of the outline of its face. And it's not really doing anything other than looking at us, kind of looking like it was sitting at the bar at one time. And we see that this issue was written by Garth Ennis with art by Will Simpson and Stan Walk. And we start off on the first page with a panel of a pub from the outside. We get some narration about the history of this pub. And it says, The Northampton Arms had been one of the best pubs in Camden for as long as anyone can remember. It was old-fashioned without being twee, and had a kind of familiar, used feel to it that put most people at ease straight away. A thoughtful visitor once said it had that twilight quality that all the really good pubs had, 
a disguising veil that set it apart from the world outside and let you do what you want without fear of interruption. You could get a drink or stay sober and the pub would provide a sanctuary for any such behavior. It was a really difficult place to dislike. Young people used it as a meeting place for a quick drink before heading onto the clubs. And pensioners would sit comfortably at the back and talk about old times that grew better the older they got. Most of all, the Northampton was a friendly place. You felt settled there, not like in those plastic and gold monstrosities full of fake marble floors and nauseating designer loggers that were creeping up from the West End on a tide of mid-80s mindless bullshit. It was a pub built for people back when such minor details still mattered. And the people that mattered most in the Northampton Arms were Freddie and Laura Collins, who ran the place and did a bloody good job of it too. They'd been there all their lives. Laura had actually been born there. A German bomber crashed near Mornington Crescent in 1940, and with it blocking the road, the ambulance couldn't get Laura's mom to the hospital. So the pub, as one of the few buildings in the area still standing, had to do instead. And 20 years later, Laura met Freddie in Northampton, where he was working behind the bar. They got married not long after, and Freddie became manager in 1968. They were a happy couple, not deliriously so, but content and very much in love. It was a love that lasted nearly 30 years, a love for each other that was almost a tangible thing. It was bound up with the pub, which was their life, protecting and nourishing them with a reassuring atmosphere where a marriage could thrive. When Freddie died, most of the community turned out for his funeral. He was that sort of bloke running that sort of boozer. Some people wondered why Laura wept instead of bawling and mourning instead of breaking down completely. But Laura knew, I love you, he'd often told her, I'll always love you. I promise I'll never leave you alone, Laura. I'll always be here to look after you in this place. I'll stay. And maybe he did. So under all that narration, we saw each of those little scenes playing out. And under the last piece of narration of maybe he did, we see Laura in the present as a middle-aged woman. She is bartending now. And we see standing next to her is actually a ghost of her husband. So it seems like his love was so strong for her that he hung around as a ghost instead of passing into the afterlife. And he doesn't look like a mean ghost or anything. He's definitely smiling, standing next to her, kind of like he's there for moral support. And we see the name of this issue is The Pub Where I Was Born. Then we cut to John Constantine. He is in his apartment and he's just looking out the window, kind of staring at things. And his narration says, getting cooler these days. Autumn's on its way and I'm thinking how sad it is that the hope of summer has disappeared. As if winter's saying, no, no, not quite. Time to go back in the box till next year. You can try again then knowing full well that next year things will be just the same and we'll follow the cycle of warm attempt and cold failure just like before. Matt, I tried. Christ, how I tried, and I failed anyway. I tricked the bloody devil himself into curing my lung cancer, and just when it looked like I'd done something really special, my friend was torn to pieces inside himself, reminding me what a useless shit I am. I've mourned for a month. Today I was supposed to pull myself together, Clean clothes, shower, shave, but... And as he's wallowing in his self-pity, all of a sudden, someone knocks on the door and cuts his thoughts off. So he goes to answer, and he sees it is Kit. And they have stayed in contact over the last month. She's been helping him out. And she's just here to see if he wants to get out of his house, which she comments is a pigsty and is also very smelly and disgusting. So she asks him if he wants to go to the Northampton pub tonight with her. And John says he already was going to be there earlier in the evening because he's got a card game with Chaz. So he will meet up with her when she gets there. 
But she was pretty much there just to ask him that, so she leaves. And as she's exiting the building, he kind of watches her from his window, and the narration continues, I half expected a visit from Kit. She left me alone after Matt's funeral, knowing I'm not the type who wants nonstop comfort and a shoulder to cry on. Not me. I'm macho, you see. I'd rather brood for ages and stew in my own misery than be pulled back from the brink of my own nervous breakdown at the 11th hour. Us lads are like that. But like I said, it's been a month, and Kit came. And I'm thinking things maybe I shouldn't be. Or should I? And as he thinks that, Kit waves goodbye to him in the window and gives him a little smile. And when he sees that, it kind of seems like he thinks maybe there is something romantic there between us. And this thought actually gives him a little bit of relief from the despair he's been feeling for the last month. And we see that he's got like kind of a nice hopeful smile. And as we turn the next page, we see John in a very non-John Constantine place. He's at a park, on a bench, feeding a bunch of ducks. And his narration says, haven't had a fag all day. That's quite good, come to think of it. It's nearly six o'clock and I've done bugger all today. Here I am sitting in the park. Usually when I go for a stroll, something weird happens. Either I run into a crazy girl who's the new blessed virgin, or some mad sod who's turned into a bulldog. But today, well, unless these ducks are possessed or something, I think I've had a nice, quiet, peaceful day. And I have to admit, it's not bad. I mean, I'm going to be 40 in a couple years. I can't go pissing about with magic and stuff forever. Might be time I wised up a bit. Might be time I grew up. And right as John's having this nice thought to himself, apparently he was kind of talking these things out loud a little bit, and a kid saw him doing that while he was feeding the ducks, and the kid says, Do you always talk to ducks, asshole? And then we cut to the Northampton pub, where John is walking in, and the narration says, The youth of today. Hope the little turd will be a bit more respectful when he gets out of that pond. Anyway, half past six, and here we are. The Northampton Arms, my favorite pub. And behind the bar, my favorite bar lady. And of course, he's talking about Laura. So he goes over to the bar, and he says hi to her, and it seems like they've known each other for a long time. And John says, all right, gorgeous. And Laura says, bloody hell, John Constantine, where have you been? And John replies, ah, the usual, hell and back and all that. How's things then? Bit quiet for a Friday night, isn't it? So they talk a bit more about how there's like a rock concert, and that's why it's kind of empty today. And then Laura tells John, as for me, well, it's all change around here. Mr. Carson's selling the place, would you believe? And John replies, so what, Laura? It doesn't matter who buys it. They'd be daft not to keep you on as manager. And she says, hmm, but I always get worried about this stuff, John. You just never know. If Freddie was alive, and then John cuts in, if Freddie was alive, love, he'd say exactly the same thing I did. Don't worry. And with that, John goes and walks over to where Chaz is playing cards. And this goes about as well as you think it would. John, of course, is a bit of a ringer. He's playing these guys for fools. And of course, if he was losing, he could just use magic to turn the cards into whatever he wanted them to see. But it doesn't seem like he's using magic. It just seems like he's really good at cards compared to these guys. And it also seems like Chaz and John are definitely conning these guys together. Like Chaz might be playing bad on purpose or give John signals and then John will be able to know what the best play might be. And while they're playing, Chaz is giving John a breakdown of a new idea he has to make money. He kind of always has these ideas, but this one is basically Uber Eats, which is kind of interesting. Chaz explains it. Yeah, kind of a number one in a field of one, really. It's a delivery service. Pizza places and Chinese takeaways do deliveries, right? So why shouldn't you have them for a cafe or a chippy? That's what I'm going to do. You got all these blokes, right? Feeling peckish for a bacon buddy or a cod and chips or pasty. And normally they'd cloud out the wife till she did it, which is well out of order. 
But this way, you just phone me and Bob's your uncle. I'll make a fortune. So what do you think, John? And we don't see what John actually tells him, but we get John's narration saying, Chaz is a bit miffed when I tell him exactly what I think. So he goes to sulk in the toilet while I carry on taking these two soft touches to the cleaners. And the soft touches he's talking about are the two other guys playing poker with Chaz and him. So while those guys are getting beat by John at poker, they kind of mention some things going on. They bring up that a guy named Carson is selling the bar, which Laura told John earlier. And then they also bring up that there's a guy named Joe Hollis who's working for Carson. And apparently he's been like intimidating or threatening Laura. And John's heard of the guy, but he doesn't really think the dude's super threatening. But one of the guys says, yeah, but he ain't the man he was. Last year he was walking home smashed and he stopped for a piss off the bridge. Thought it was over a river, you know. Turns out it was over a tube line. Silly bastard pissed onto the live rail, and the current shot up his piss and fried his tackle off. Ever since then, he's had sort of a death wish, I suppose. If he's been here to see Laura, she wants to watch herself. He's a friggin' nutter. And as the man finishes his story about Joe Hollis, Chaz comes back from the restroom, and then John lays down a royal flush and basically cleans out the guys for the rest of the night. And that times out perfect because right as he stands up, he sees Kit is here and she is waiting for him at the bar. So they order a couple drinks and they go sit down and they begin to talk and they mostly talk about John and what his life has been like for the last couple years. He tells her that specifically the last four years were the worst years of his life. And Kit has some insight. She says to him, things have been rough from what you've been telling me. Nobody special to look after you? And she definitely asks this casually, but by the look on John's face, we can tell he understands that she just asked if he has a girlfriend or not. So he replies, well, after Emma, there was Zed, who turned out to be a bit much for me to handle. And Marge was nice, but she wanted me to settle down. And Kit asks, why don't you want to settle down, John? A man of your age. And John interjects, oh, no, nah, I wouldn't mind getting hitched, but kids? I'd be a terrible dad. Besides, Marge was one of those organic, back-to-nature types, and I've always been a great believer in just putting something in the microwave. And then without John even having to ask, Kit just kind of volunteers that she is also single and that she's kind of had similar issues with marriage or at least settling down. So they continue to drink and as they do, John begins to look at her more and more in a romantic light. His narration says, my mind drifts into things like how beautiful she is and the more the drink goes down, the more I begin to think that maybe we could have something together. Maybe we could even recapture some of the old days and my life could start going right. I've lost count of how many GNTs I've had. This woman knows how to drink, and she knows all about me. There's no fooling Kit, no smart looks and wisecracks and slipping into the shadows. Anyone else and we'd be well on our way to her place by now. But Kit has me feeling like a nervous schoolboy plucking up the courage to ask for the very first kiss. So John continues to stare at her as she's talking, and uh, he kind of interjects after there's a pause, and he says, Hmm, I've been thinking. And she looks at him and says, Oh, I? Well, I know what you've been thinking, because it's been written all over your face. And I'll tell you this, you're far too drunk. And John looks at her and says, and you're not? And she replies, not as bad as you, son. Couple more drinks and I drink you under the table. And then John gets all macho for a second and says, now look, I don't, I don't want to be sexist, but I will never, never be out drunk by a woman. And as he says that, he tries to stand up and he literally slides under the table then we cut outside and we see two men sitting in a car. And the man in the driver's seat is the man everyone's been talking about selling the bar, Carson. And it turns out 
he has taken an insurance claim on the bar and he is planning on burning it down tonight. And him and the other man who's named Quincy are going over the plan and Quincy's kind of nervous. He is the man who will be developing the land afterwards. So he'll be buying the land from Carson and then Carson will get that payday and also the insurance payday. So Carson tells Quincy that he's got it all under control. He's hired Joe Hollis to do it tonight. And we just heard about Joe Hollis from the guys at the poker game. He's the man from their story who accidentally pissed on the third rail and had his junk blown off. So Carson assures Quincy that everything will be fine by saying, like I said, Joe was reliable. He had a little accident a while back and it left him, well, he doesn't have much more to lose. You know what I mean? He just keeps going until the job's done, no matter what the risk. And because Quincy was asking so many questions and bothering Carson about this, he turns to him kind of evilly and says, the job in this case involves the Northampton arms and then cutting off your sodding head if you give me any trouble. And then a horrified Quincy says, oh Christ, take it easy. There's no need for that kind of thing. Look, this Hollis, he's not gonna hurt the old lady, is he? And then Carson lights a big cigar and puffs the smoke in his face and says, don't know, that's the risk of this kind of thing, isn't it? And this comment definitely does not put Quincy at ease. And then we cut to the outside of the pub where John and Kit are leaving. I guess they're the last patrons that were in the bar before it closed. And Laura is telling them that she hopes they get home all right. And John is just singing, of course, cause he's so drunk. And Kit is basically having to hold him up and keep him from falling. So as Laura locks the door, we see the narration says, it was a scene Laura had played out many times. It was one of the things a good manager would do, seeing the last drinkers off home safely and then closing up for the night. But tonight was different. Tonight seemed like this was the last time and the cycle of boozing till last orders and staggering home would be broken. Freddie, she thought, Freddie, where are you? And then behind her, a ghostly voice says, what's the matter, love? And we see her ghost of a husband has appeared behind her and he says, it's Carson again, isn't it? And it seems like she fully sees him and can talk to him. So she answers, yes, he said he'd take care of me if I left quietly, but I turned him down. And that's when he sent round Hollis. And she puts her head in her hands and starts crying. And she says, he said I had to get out tonight. Oh, Freddie, it's obvious. They're going to do the pub, aren't they? Carson must have sold it to some bloke who only wants the land. And he's going to do the demolition on the cheap. And the husband says, Christ, if I had a bloody body, I'd kill that bastard. It just makes me so freaking angry, Laura, but there's nothing I can do. I've stayed here to be with you and help you, and that's all I'm allowed. And if you stand up to someone like Hollis, you'll really get hurt. And she looks up at his face and she says, what about you, Freddie? What'll happen to you if the pub goes? And he looks down lovingly and says, oh, sweetheart, there's not much more that can happen to me, is there? I'll just move on somewhere else, I suppose. It's like, I think where I am now is just a tiny part of something huge. But I'll never forget you, love. I'll think of you always. I love you, Laura. And then we see him reach up to her face with his ghost hand, like he's going to wipe away her tears. But then we cut to like a panel of just her face, and she's saying that she loves him too, but it is her hand that is wiping her tears away. So I'm not sure if they're insinuating that this is all in her imagination, or if he's actually a real ghost. But to Laura, he's real. So she looks at the bar after she's wiped her tears, and she looks around at the bar and says, but this place is all I've got, Freddy. If it goes and you go with it, what'll be left for me? I'm staying here with you. And Freddy looks at her and says, no, for God's sake, Laura, Hollis and his bastards will kill you. And she wipes more tears from her face and says, I don't care, love. This place means too much to too many people. 
and you mean too much to me to just throw it all away because some little shit says to get out. And then she looks at Freddy's face very resolutely and says, they burn this place over my dead body, Freddy. And right as she says that, the front door gets kicked in and a very large fat man comes in with a bunch of goons and they all have gasoline canisters in their hands and he sees her and he says, what the hell are you doing here, you stupid old whore? And Laura says, get out. You just get out of here. I'm staying right where I am. And the man who is Joe Hollis goes over to her and says, no, you're bloody not, whore. And he backhands her across the face, knocking her down. And it actually knocks Laura out. So they're able to continue with their burning of this place. And they actually do bring her out to the back alley. But they don't really show that until a little bit later. Right now, I just thought that they were pouring gasoline over her and stuff. So I thought this was way more hardcore. And I would think that because all of the kids that are with him that are his goons are literal neo-Nazi skinheads. So they're all wearing like swastika jackets and some of them have swastika tattoos. And it's kind of funny because we hear those neo-Nazis like grumbling to each other because Joe's kind of a dick to them and they're afraid of him. So I guess if neo-Nazis are afraid of you, then you're really crazy. So they finish pouring the gasoline and they're trying to make it look like an accident by putting all the gas and like a trail of it from the heater so it looked like the heater oil leaked. But I definitely think that if the police did an investigation after this fire, they would for sure find some suspicious things. So Hollis and his goons finish up and the goons go outside and Hollis says that he will finish off the building. And the way he does that is by actually turning on the furnace and that will, I guess, ignite the gas that he's poured over it. So he does that and he leaves. And then we cut to Laura in the back alley and she's waking up just as the fire is starting. And the narration says, Laura woke up slowly. There was something loose in her mouth and it took her a while to realize it was her teeth. Her jaw was broken and she was trying not to choke on her own blood. The pain was massive. When she saw the pub, she wanted to scream, but the shattered jawbone turned into a low moan. It hurt like hell to breathe because her nose had been smashed into the air passage. She thought of Freddy and ran for the door. And the door they're talking about is the back door. So it's been open because she's been thrown out and it's just kind of held open. So she tries to enter through that rear entrance. And just as she walks up to the door, we cut away from her and the rear of the building to the front door where the main street is. And there is a gigantic explosion as it burns. And the narration continues. And the first explosion of flying glass tore her face off just as she got to the bar. Something sharp punched its way between her ribs. She felt her heart rip open, cough blood and mucus, fell. The fire took hold with an unbelievable grip, and the smell of her melting body fat reached her butchered nostrils. She knew death was an instant away, and still she held on to the ruined meat her body had become. Something wasn't right. Something was still missing. And then we see her burning corpse, and we can still tell she's alive because her eyes are open. And she's reaching out, and all of a sudden a voice says, I'm here, Laura. I'm here with you. Just let go, love. It's all over now. And it looks like her hand actually grabs onto something in the air, but we don't see the ghostly figure of her husband anymore. And as her body continues to burn, the narration says, but it wasn't over at all. Laura and Freddie were dead and the Northampton arms was gone. And that was just the beginning. And that is the end of this issue. So if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and we will see y'all in the next one.